probably around the first half of my life, I would say. Uh, I was highly involved in sports, and I learned a lot about myself through that. One of the things I learned is if I have a choice, I'd much rather be on the field playing than in the stands watching. I also learned that for me, it wouldn't be enough just to wear the uniform on the sideline. I want to be in the game. That's especially true if it's an epic battle where we're going to be bruised, we're going to be bloodied, we're going to be exhausted. We're all going to come together ultimately to share the victory If that's what it's going to be on the field, I want in. If you view sports as kind of a metaphor for life, I think that's kind of true for me and how I want to live my life. I don't want to be a spectator. I don't want to just wear the uniform and have a ticket to heaven. If there's going to be an epic battle, Count me in. I think if Peter were with us this morning, he would say, me too. Me too. As a matter of fact, Peter went so far as to say he would actually rejoice if he was found worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. What exactly did he mean by that? Well, that's what we want to talk about today. If you have a Bible, turn with us to 1 Peter chapter 4. Chapter 4 is a kind of a, a change in tone in Peter's letter. He's talked about how to live strategically in order to minimize unnecessary conflict, in order to maintain maximum freedom for the sake of the gospel. But it is possible that if we follow the strategy, we just become more effective, which just more angers the critics, which can actually lead to more intense opposition and even persecution. It does appear that's what's happening with these churches that Peter is writing to. There's a shift in chapter 4 to much more discussion about persecution And we know from history that is what awaits both Peter and these churches. So we pick it up in chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ... Keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. Do not be surprised. That word surprised is the same word we had earlier in chapter 4, verse 4. Carries the idea, not just surprise, but kind of as if this is strange, as if this is odd, even some level of offense. So if you think when you trusted Christ as Savior, you boarded a cruise ship, nice little ride on the love boat, 
and now people are shooting at you. You're surprised. You're, you're shocked. This is strange. This is odd. It's even kind of offensive to you. I paid a lot of money for my journey on the love boat. What's the deal with people shooting? But what Peter is saying is when you trusted Christ, you didn't board the love boat. You boarded a battleship. We talked about that last week. So don't consider it strange. You shouldn't be surprised by the fiery ordeal. Now, there's a couple different views on fiery ordeal. Some think it's actually a literal statement. We do know that at some point in time, Nero began burning Christians at the stake. He would cover them with pitch. He would actually light them and use them as torches in his gardens. Whether or not that has begun at this point or not is debated, but some think that uh, Peter's making a literal reference to that. But it's also true that throughout the New Testament, this fiery language is often used in regard to persecution. It's metaphoric language. Basically, it's to capture the idea of a refining fire that is used to refine precious metals. So in the refining process, the fire brings the dross, the impurities to the surface. They are uh, cleaned away, and what remains is the pure gold. That's probably the more likely reference here. So it's the idea that trials, persecutions, struggles uh, are a purifying process that brings the impurities out. They're scraped away, and what remains is the pure gold. The idea of testing isn't so much a test to see if you're in or out. It's much more of the idea of revealing or exposing. So the refining process doesn't make the gold, it reveals the gold. It brings the dross up, it's removed, and what, what is revealed or exposed is the pure gold. That's probably uh, what Peter is talking about there. As though some strange thing were happening to you. Basically, the idea that this should not come as a surprise. This isn't strange. There's a couple of ways to think about this. One is uh, Peter, John, the other apostles heard this directly out of the mouth of Jesus himself. As a matter of fact, Peter's buddy John, his fellow apostle, writes in his letter, chapter 3, verse 3, do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. Very similar language and almost identical to the language of Jesus in the upper room hours before he was arrested. When he said to these men, the world hated me, they're going to hate you. The world persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. So Peter is saying this shouldn't be a surprise. This has been clear from the beginning. This is an epic spiritual battle. And what is at stake are the uh, eternal souls of the people around us. Another way to think about it, though, if, you're gonna, if we're going to go back to kind of this athletic metaphor, is you just don't leave the bleachers, the stands, and walk through the gate and go on to the field and play. It's not like that. There is this long, hard process of getting in shape, getting beat up, getting bruised, 
feeling the pain, learning, growing, getting to the point where you're finally ready to go in. So it's kind of the idea that if we're going to be serious about being players in this epic battle, there's a necessary purifying process to burn away the impurities, the distractions, and ultimately to refine the gold that makes us more useful to the master. That's kind of the idea there. Verse 13, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that at the revelation of his glory, which means the return of Christ, you may rejoice with exaltation, rejoice with great joy. So what is Peter talking about here? He's talking about uh, what it means to be counted worthy to suffer for the cause of Christ, to share in the sufferings of Christ. There's an interesting story in Acts 5. Let me just read you a little bit of that. But basically, in Acts chapter 5, the apostles are preaching the gospel. People are responding. Uh, the church is exploding. It's threatening to the religious leaders, so they want the apostles arrested. They're arrested. They're threatened. Uh, basically, uh, they enter into this discussion. Gamil, one of them, comes forth and says, hey, here's the deal. If this Jesus story is true, you can't stop it. If it's not true, it will die out. So maybe just let him go. The religious leaders think that's good advice, so they flog the apostles, which would have been an incredibly painful experience, and turn them loose, basically threaten them, you need to be quiet or else. That's where we pick it up in Acts 5. It says, and they took his advice after calling the apostles in. They flogged them and ordered them not to speak the name of Jesus, then they released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So Peter has a lot of credibility as he writes these words. This isn't a, theolo a theologian in a seminary kind of passing down ivory tower advice. This is Peter who has been in the trenches. He has suffered persecution, imprisonment, and pain and suffering for the cause of Christ. He doesn't become angry and embittered. He's not surprised by this. He actually considers it a privilege to have been considered worthy to suffer to, uh, for the name of Christ, to share in the sufferings of Christ. It's also worth remembering this is the same Peter that denied Christ on the night he was arrested. Without a doubt, that has to be the absolute worst moment in the life of Peter. He was absolutely miserable, and even after he was convinced that Jesus had rose from the dead, he was also convinced that he was certainly off the team. John 21, he's back to fishing. Jesus has to show up and issue Peter a recall. 
Peter experienced the terrible pain of this denial. And now he's got his game face on. He's in a completely different frame of mind. And if there's going to be action, he wants to be in the middle of the action. And if he is found worthy by Jesus to share in the sufferings and to be persecuted for the cause of Christ, he actually rejoices. It's the idea that he wants to be in the middle of the action and give everything he has for the cause of Christ. Basically, what Peter then says is, until the return of Christ, this glorious moment, it's going to be an all-out celebration, and he wants to be part of it, knowing he was on the field, in the action, giving everything he had to accomplish the mission. So again, taking this back to kind of an athletic or a sports metaphor. Imagine the team makes it to the championship and all that's involved to get there. It's an epic battle. Players come away bruised, beaten up, exhausted, but at the final gun, they emerge victorious. There's now going to be some sort of a parade, some sort of a celebration What Peter is saying is, in that moment, I don't want to just be a fan. I don't want to just have worn the uniform and stood on the sideline while the team won the battle. In order to enter into the fullness of the celebration, he's saying, I want to be in the mix. I want to be bruised. I want to be bleeding. I want to be exhausted. I want to know that I gave everything I had to be part of the victory when we celebrate this magnificent victory at the return of Christ. Verse 14. If you are reviled, the word means verbally abused, for the name of Christ, you are blessed. It's a word that means happy. You're happy because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Basically what Peter is saying in verse 14, if if you're abused, persecuted for the name of Christ, you uh, you are to be happy, you're to rejoice. Not because you like to be abused and mistreated, that would be strange, but because there is this epic battle going on that involves Christ, the spirit of glory, and God the Father. In the very beginning of Peter, verse 2 of chapter 1, we were told that this mission involves God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. All members of the Trinity engaged in this epic battle. That's basically what Peter's coming back to here. That stands for the name of Christ. Upon him is the spirit of glory uh, and the spirit and uh, God the Father. So all three members of the Trinity engaged in this epic battle, ultimately, for the victory and the glory of God. One of the challenges we probably have as Americans is just trying to sort out this concept of persecution. The text isn't just talking about suffering in any general sense, specifically talking about persecution for the cause of Christ. We as Americans have uh, really experienced very little of that. You know, we're not talking about just somebody says something hurtful on social media or that somebody at work ignores us or somebody at school makes fun of us. 
we're talking about real persecution. Many of these people receiving this letter would ultimately be persecuted, imprisoned. Many would die for the cause of Christ. Peter, shortly after writing First and Second Peter, himself would be crucified upside down for the cause of Christ. It's also sobering to realize that through the last 2,000 years, most Christians have suffered some level of persecution. Many of our brothers and sisters today suffer extreme persecution for the cause of Christ. Many of them put to death. Generally speaking, that has not been true. It's been very different for us as Christians in America. But I think there also has to be this understanding that we have fundamentally changed as a nation. Been saying this now for years. We're not talking about one or two election cycles and everything will be like it was. It won't be. We have fundamentally changed at our core. Whether or not we can find our way back is up for debate. But the reality is there's a lot of hint, hints that the winds of change are upon us. And it's naive to think that there won't be a day where Christians in America will be persecuted. Looking at little hints in the culture. So for example, just recently, when there was that uh, mass shooting in that church in Texas, a horrible event. One of the things that happened out of that is something that I don't remember happening before. There were people asking for prayer for the uh, victims and the family members of victims in the shootings. And there were voices in the culture that mocked that. That these people were praying, they were worshiping when they were slaughtered, and there was this voice of mockery that obviously that doesn't work, it isn't true, and maybe rethink their options. Now, that's a high level of hostility to enter into that level of mockery to people who were praying and worshiping at the time of the slaughter. Yet what was interesting is there's been very little reaction to those voices in our culture. Things are changing. The possibility that those who are children today may suffer a level of persecution that we have never known before in our country for the cause of Christ is very real and very possible. And suddenly, the words of Peter start to make more sense to us. He says in verse 15, make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or as a troublesome meddler. So there does seem to be some hint in Peter's letter that some of these believers are kind of drifting back to their pagan ways. He's addressed that several times already. But it's also possible that these people, as a result of the unfair, abusive treatment, uh, are, are, have a tendency to justify 
bad behavior. That in our case, because what's going on, it's okay to steal, and it's okay to do these things uh, kind of justified because of the circumstance. What Peter is saying is, is not to do that, that the conflict, the judgment, should not be because they're doing evil things, but rather for the cause of Christ. The interesting one is the idea of a troublesome meddler. Most scholars think Peter just basically made up this word. So there's a lot of discussion. What exactly does he mean? Some people like the translation agitator. Kind of carries the idea that earlier in Peter's letter, he really talked about learning to be skillful in a hostile culture. That, that we learn how to respond as citizens and as slaves and husbands and wives so as not to create unnecessary conflict. A troublesome meddler would be someone who kind of is crusading for the cause of Christ and just creating unnecessary conflict all over the place, making it worse for everyone. Now, we know these people. They are where we work. They're in our schools. They're on social media. They just think to stand for Christ is to somehow create all this unnecessary conflict, crusading for the things of God. But at the end of the day, all they're doing is making it much more difficult to have meaningful conversations with people that need to know Jesus. One of the things that's always helpful to remember is I don't expect unbelievers to act like believers. I don't expect unbelievers to share my values and beliefs. It is not productive to continually be pointing out everything that everyone is doing wrong and keeping things constantly in a state of conflict. Ultimately, we have to be more skillful than that and bring the conversation around to what it means to have an encounter with the resurrected Christ, to experience new life in Christ. That's the only thing that's going to generate real and lasting change. So basically, the troublesome meddler is someone who's just unnecessary, creating conflict, and everybody pays the price for that. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, now we'd probably read right past that, but it's worth noting there's only three times in the New Testament where the word Christian is ever used. Twice in the book of Acts and once here. It originally was kind of a derogatory term, a Christ follower, and and who would be so naive and so stupid as to actually believe that? They were called the Christians. So that's what Peter's talking about. It's kind of a a, a slander. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in his name. We have a lot of this in the culture. Christians are considered to be simple-minded, somewhat naive, uh, lacking in intellect, kind of easily persuadable, and Christians generally speaking, are just kind of dumb. And uh, the sophisticated among us see it differently. Paul says in Romans 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God 
unto salvation. What Peter is saying is if they slander you, if they call you a name, wear it like a badge. Yes, it's true. I am a Christ follower. I do believe in the message of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. Not to be ashamed or embarrassed by that, but to take our stand. But to glorify God in his name. Verse 17, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? It's a very interesting couple of verses. In essence, we look around the world and we say, you know, why is it that often this, there seems to be so much struggle for the Christian? And why does it seem like the godless just kind of go floating along uh, and seem to get away with it? You hear people talk about that all the time. What Peter is saying is right now, God's attention is on his children. It's time for judgment. Ju this word for judgment is not condemnation. It's more like discipline. It's a judgment of the good and the bad. But it's this purifying, refining process. We learned earlier that we are living stones. We're the house of God. We're the people of God. And right now, God's primary attention is not on the wicked. It's on his children. And he is purifying and growing and changing and strengthening uh, his children as stewards of the gospel in order to accomplish this eternal mission. What Peter is saying, that's true right now. But if this is what God is willing to do for his own children, then imagine what he's going to do to those who have rejected the gospel. Hebrews 12 has really the same message, that God pays attention to his children, and he disciplines his children because he loves them, and he wants to grow them and change them and prepare them and refine them for this, uh, for this uh, epic battle and mission that will matter forever. When my girls were little, if we would go somewhere to the store or the mall or wherever, it was not my responsibility to discipline every child in the store. It was my responsibility to discipline three girls. Why? Because I'm their dad. They belong to me. And it was my responsibility to discipline them and grow them as their dad. Would it be true that the other children in the room got away with lots of things that my kids did not get away with? Absolutely true. Were there times when they thought that wasn't fair? Absolutely true. But at the end of the day, my responsibility was toward my children. That's exactly what Peter is saying. Right now, God's focus is on his children, growing them, 
refining them, training them, strengthening them, purifying them to be part of this epic battle for the eternal souls of the men and women around us. But then he turns his attention and says, but once Jesus returns and the children of God are safely in his presence, then he turns his attention to those who have rejected the gospel. The quote there is from the Proverbs. The idea of how difficult it was to save us is kind of this story of it cost God his own son, and it's been this continual uh, discipline, refining, fiery process in order to prepare us for the return of Christ. So if that was what was necessary for his own children, what exactly lies ahead for those who have rejected the gospel? It's actually a very ominous couple of verses that what lies ahead is beyond the description of the text. One of the ways to think about it is for us as Christians, this world is as close to hell as we're ever going to get, destined for an eternity in the presence of God. But for those who reject the gospel, this world is as close to heaven as they're going to get destined for an eternal destiny of torment separated from the presence of God. So it all kind of begins to put things back into perspective. Verse 19, Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. So we've had this before in Peter. People often ask the question, what is God's will for me? Well, we had it earlier. It is God's will that I submit and do good in order to silence the critics. We had that in chapter 2. Now the text says it may be God's will for me to suffer persecution for the name of Christ. He says, for those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls, that's a banking term, deposit their souls to a faithful creator. Real unusual phrase, faithful creator. This is the only place it occurs in the Bible. Uh, you know, the unbelieving world would say, well, what right does God have to judge? The biblical answer would be because he is the creator, and the creator has every right to judge his creation. So that's kind of why that language is used. In doing what is right. So basically the idea is, Peter is saying, if I have been found worthy to suffer persecution for the cause of Christ, that I will rejoice that God has found me worthy I entrust my soul, I deposit it into the hands of God, and I respond by doing what is right for the sake of the gospel. It's a very sobering thing to realize that many of these first readers, soon after this, would suffer severe persecution. 
Many of them would be put to death. Many of them uh, burned at the stake, used as human torches in Nero's gardens. Peter himself, shortly after 1 and 2 Peter, would himself be executed, crucified upside down for the cause of Christ. But what Peter was saying is to realize that this is a battle. And what is at stake are the eternal souls of men and women. This is not a cruise on the love boat. This is a trip on a battleship. What Peter is saying is that there is this epic battle where you're going to get bruised, you're going to get bloodied, you're going to get beat up, you're going to be exhausted, you're going to have to give all you have in order to ultimately share in the victory that will be ours when Jesus returns. If it becomes necessary that we suffer true persecution for the cause of Christ, if there's going to be this epic battle for the eternal souls of the men and women, boys and girls around us, if we're going to get bruised and bloodied and beat up and exhausted in order to share in the victory, if that's what's necessary, I say to you without hesitation, count me in. What about you? Our Father, we were just sobered by these words. It would be great to just cruise into the sunset on the love boat. But this isn't, this isn't heaven. It's not supposed to be. And right now we are engaged in an epic battle for the eternal souls of the men and women, the boys and girls around us. Lord, there's those who are going to be spectators. There's those who are going to wear the uniform, but they'll stand on the sideline content to hold a ticket to heaven. But Lord, there's many in this room that say, if that's the cost, put me in. God, give us the courage and the strength to take our stand, to not be ashamed of the gospel, to be faithful to our call. And if it is your will that we suffer for the sake of the mission, Lord, may we rejoice that we've been found worthy to be part of that which will last forever. It's in the name of Jesus we pray.